You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26ers? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delicia, and this episode features Glenda Smiley. Glenda is a writer, social impact strategist, and founder of Mogul Pro Consulting. She has a passion for community-based education, women's empowerment, and youth advocacy, with a proven track record in such areas as executive support, program development, and organizational growth. Glenda has had the good fortune of honing many of her skills at beloved organization, Black Girls Rock, a dream job for sure. But what happens when your dream job is serving you in one area of your life, but leaving you depleted in others? For Glenda, it meant that it was time to walk away and focus on watering the other flowers in her garden. She's now thriving as an entrepreneur. And not only that, she's in a healthy romantic partnership and enjoying her new role as mother to a beautiful baby girl. So she shares with us her journey, which is pretty inspiring, especially for those of us who are trying to figure out how to have it all. So take a listen and I hope you enjoy. Glenda, welcome to the December 26th of podcast. Hello. How Thanks are you? Me. I'm good. I'm good. Awesome. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. We spoke a while ago, so yes, we're exactly. we're excited, yes, to actually have you in the building. Um, and then I feel like we got all this great content and this preliminary conversation we just had a few moments ago. Exactly. So yeah. we're going to have to run it back uh, on, on record, but let's get into it. So tell me, who is Glenda Smiley? Yes. I knew this question was coming and I still um, not dreaded it, but I think it's something that everyone should answer for them. Mm-hmm. Answer carefully. Um, so who is Glenda Smiley? Um, I'm a writer. I'm a social impact strategist. Um, I'm a lover of Black culture um, and also of women um, and girls. Um, And I would say that I'm also a mother, literally Mm -hmm. and figuratively. Um, I've come to value the importance of mothering myself, Mm -hmm. um, mothering my sisters, and um, definitely mothering the projects that I want to breathe life into, Mm -hmm. projects and causes that I really care about. So I definitely want to get into this concept of motherhood, but also mothering yourself, because I think that's powerful. Um, But before we go there, social impact strategist, what does that mean? To me, it means, um, I guess what I've been doing um, over the years is uh, a lot of educational philanthropy based Mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. Um, But slowly, I've been stepping out of education philanthropy and just working with social entrepreneurs who have powerful causes Mm -hmm. that I want to propel forward. That's what I do with my company, Mobile Propeller. Um, And social impact strategy really is just using um, tools, hacks, um, business operation systems to help those who are entrepreneurial um, or thought leaders get their work done most effectively Mm -hmm. and efficiently. Um, It's work that I did naturally in my position um, as an EA at Black Girls Rock Mm -hmm. or in other administrative positions that I had in schools, um, Harlem Children's Zone, um, Harlem Village Academy. Um, And so what I do at my consultancy is apply the tools that I fine-tune in those spaces Mm -hmm. um, to other entrepreneurial projects. So take me back, because when I hear people talk about things like social impact strategy. I don't think that like when I was in college, I even knew what that was, right? Correct. So back then you were an education, English and education major, right? Yes, okay. Correct. So back then, what was your dream for your life and career? Mm-hmm. Very good question. Mm-hmm. Um, so back then I was one of those folks who came in pre-med, mm. very enthusiastic, got to that orgo <laughs> street and was like, nah, bro. <laughs> like I'm good. It's not for me. Um, And part of what made me know it wasn't for me is just I wasn't even passionate about studying Mm -hmm. um, for the exam. So um, I had to have a come to Jesus moment um, and realize that I always loved writing. And what attracted me to medicine was that I was always a do-gooder. Okay. And I happened to be good in science in high school. So people put uh, the doctor path on me um, and... 
I adhere to it. I tried to very long. Um, but the, the point was that I wanted to have social impact. I wanted to have a career where I knew I was doing good, mm -hmm. where I, I could be um, an advocate for good causes. Um, while I was still pre-med, I had the, the good luck of stumbling upon a documentary by Marette Mandifer, mm -hmm. who um, she's an anthropologist and she's a medical doctor. She also is a founder of a nonprofit called uh, Truth Aid. Okay. Um, and she was doing a lot of work around HIV and AIDS, but also just sexual health. Mm -hmm. um, and so she held these events called Truth Circles um, that were gender-based events where she would gather women together to talk about their sexual histories, gather men together sorry, to talk about their sexual histories. And so I invited her to Barnard um, to come speak. And we built a relationship um, starting with that event. Um, and she became a mentor of sorts. And that's when I really realized that even in medicine, there's this more social lens that has to do with um, community and changing narratives. Um, she was also a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. um, and that really was an aha moment for me that there's something about this exchange, whether it's being in a circle among sisters and laying your truth bare, or whether it's creating a documentary series where you're talking about taboo topics. Um, there's power in the tongue to shift mindsets and narratives and change behaviors. Um, and that's when I decided to, to lean into my passion for English literature um, and media. Um, again, by the grace of God, I, I stumbled into things that were just aligned with what was going on in my mind and in my spirit. Um, I got accepted to the education program at Barnard, which I loved. But uh, by doing student teaching, I realized again, like there's something about this dynamic, the bureaucracy of it, that doesn't make me feel free. I can't flow in this space, but I do love um, the exchange of knowledge. Mm -hmm. I know that um, I, I also loved youth work, um, so that I knew I knew those components need to be in my career. By the time I graduated, I had a job at Harlem Children's Zone as, um, I forget the, the title was student advocate. Mm -hmm. um, that role was, in short, a social work type of position, um, but it was an entry-level position for the company. And I had to go into schools during the daytime and talk to all of the stakeholders of the kids on my caseload. And then in the afternoon, I was doing programming for the young people on my caseload, everything from tutoring um, to media-based, arts-based programming. Um, while I was there, I did didn't like the infrastructure okay. of HCZ. So I started um, casting my net and applying to positions. Um, and at that time, I was also interning at BGR okay. um, writing. I, I wanted to write on the blog. So I was working with Patrice Peck, who was um, in control of the blog at that time. And then Beverly Bond, the founder, reached out because I was already in the pipeline. And she was like, you know what? I'm really looking for an executive assistant. This will be, you know, the first full-time position we have at BGR, would you be interested? And I was like, yes, Lord. <laughs> Safe, yeah. I would be interested. Um, and so I applied. I met with her in the board of directors. And again, by the grace of God, I got funneled into a space that had the youth development piece yes. um, at the time that really was running um, a Saturday enrichment program for girls in Brooklyn. Um, it had the media storytelling piece with the Black Girls Rock Awards show. The year I came was the first year they went to BET, but they had already been doing the award show in New York for four years. Um, and then it also had the sisterhood component because it was just a very small team of dope black women yes. pushing the mission forward. Um, and so I always use that anecdote um, that if you're honest about your song or your, your raison d'etre, mm -hmm. if you're honest about it to yourself, the universe will find a way to create environments and spaces that are aligned. Um, so our, our job is to just be honest, mm -hmm. to be in flow with the things that we're passionate about. So I think for a lot of people, myself included, it took a while to come to that conclusion. But one of the things that I have noted about Barnard Women, having met a few of you, is that they're all very empowered, self-aware, um, and, and committed to following that voice and, the, and, and a path that really enriches them. Do you think 
that's just inherent to people who go to Barnard or something that's developed within that academic institution? I think it's both. Mm-hmm. I love that you mentioned that you see that mm-hmm. it's, it's a trend that you found in Barnard women because the, the key factor in me going to Barnard was Bar- Barnard a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Zora Neale Hurston being one who attracted me there. Um, Jhumpa Lahiri, who's a fantastic um, writer, also attracted me to the space. And then when I got there, I, I um, visited campus and I met Vanessa Anderson, um, who was two years ahead of me. And she was like, you have to come. This was like a prospective student mm-hmm. weekend. And she was like, you have to come to Boss. And she was like rounding up all the Black women of color um, and we went to the Zordon Hurston Lounge and sat and learned about the ethos of Black women at Barnard and that sold me on going to the school. Um, Vanessa Anderson now has um, one of the largest PR groups in LA. Wow. Lisa Ray is one of her clients. Um, I think Marseille is also a client. Um, Melina is a client of hers. Um, so I, I think there's something to women who are dynamic, mm-hmm. who are self-starters, being attracted to the college, um, but there is this legacy and lineage, um, this sorority of sorts that you um, join just by being there, um, where the women raise the bar for you while you're on campus. I just had such dynamic examples of entrepreneurial women, smart, critical thinkers, passionate women, um, women who cared about lifting as they climb. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt um, very cared for, um, both by virtue of BOSS, the affinity group for Black women at Barnard, and um, my sorority, of course, Delta Sigma Theta sorority, um, and then even the Black faculty members and administrators. There, there definitely were people um, keeping their eyes on us and making sure um, that we were honoring the significance of being at a school like that. Right. And and I think talking to a lot of high achieving Black folks who've had varying experiences at these types of institutions, myself included. Um, and right. Yes. That I think what you're what you're describing is not the same experience people are having across mm-hmm. these really rigorous programs. I, 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 I think there are it's happening more now, but you hear these stories about people going and literally feeling like they're on an island or having to do the work to really find a tribe. Um, this, in contrast, it sounds like the pipeline is set for you to not only come in uh, and, and have a community and feel safe, but also thrive, right. which is, is a different thing. A lot of people come through those schools and by the time they, they get out, it's like, thank God I made it. But to thrive in that environment and really be propelled into the next phase, that's what it sounds like. I don't want to oversell it mm-hmm. in that case because um, it might not be fair to other people's experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also went to a PWI for K through 12. Okay. I was a part of an affinity group, mm-hmm. sisters. So I also had kind of a roadmap, a survival roadmap mm-hmm. when it comes to being at a PWI. Um, and I think spiritually, I always crave being in spaces where Black women gather. Sure. Um, because my family was very much so, um, the gathering mm-hmm. type um, around womanhood and sisterhood. And so I sought those places um, and those spaces when I went to Barnard and even after Barnard. I think that's um, why I ended up at Black Girls Rock as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so to all those you know young women who are going into PWI spaces and if you feel alienated or alone, um, I think that is the ethos mm-hmm. of being at a PWI. But if you seek spaces, for um, sisterhood, you will find them. And if you don't find them, you should absolutely create them. Absolutely, which I want to get into a little bit more, the things that you've done to create sort of dialogue and exchange. Um, But let's talk about Black Girls Rock because people are going to hear that um, and sit up a little bit because all of us who are in this community of, of, of Black women and Black men as well now are familiar with Black Girls Rock. It's one of those things every year you watch the show and you're like, I can conquer the world. I've been fortunate to have been there. And I remember just the energy in that theater. I want to say it was 2015 I was there. Um, And I I knew somebody at BET. He was like, I got a ticket. Do you want to come? And I had watched the show every year. And I remember leaving and thinking, 
this is something that I, I want to be a part of, right? Um, and it, it is it is very, very special. You were in that pipeline and spent a, a, a good chunk of time there. But talk to me about like when you first, before we get to how it unfolded, when you first got there, what was that like for you? Um, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, just to step back a little bit, I, I first started reaching out to Black Girls Rock when I was a sophomore. Okay. I wanted to get Black women on campus involved in the organization, but there weren't a lot of volunteer opportunities. Mm-hmm. But I kept in touch. I ended up interning. And then once I actually interviewed for the position um, of executive assistant to Beverly Bond, I was, um, it felt amazing. Like, mm-hmm. I felt like I was home. I was amazed that there was even a space, a space existed that was aligned with the type of work that I felt like I wanted to do mm-hmm. in the world. Um, and I always tell Beverly that the excellent thing about what you're still building is that it serves the purpose. The mission is twofold, um, right? There's this mission to elevate Black women and girls in media um, by showing our whole story. Um, There's the mission to empower Black women and girls through the live events, um, the conferences, um, the summer camps that that we worked on. Um, But then there's this hidden mission to give Black women who are champions for Black women and girls, a space to do good work for people who look like us. Yes. Um, And that is an amazing gift. It's an amazing legacy that um, uh, Beverly has created for herself and for for all of us who care so deeply um, about each other Mm -hmm. and the next generation of Black girls. So I, I get the sense just in the, the short time that we've spoken about BGR that, yes, your role, your title is EA, but you were doing a lot more than than standard EA. So yes. what did your role look like? Um, it looked like it, it was a pure EA role mm-hmm. in the sense that there were a lot of administration and operational tasks. Um, but it also looked like sometimes it looked like executive coaching. That really okay. is such a visionary um, and she would always bounce ideas off of me off of um, people on the board of directors. So sometimes it looked like Beverly bouncing around creative deal uh, ideas and saying, is this possible? How are we going to do it? Um, So it became part executive coaching, part strategist. Um, And it definitely looked like a lot of project management because um, if Beverly had an idea that would benefit Black girls, for instance, Mm -hmm. um, we had to figure out how to make it happen on um, a a small budget. Because usually, Bev, I don't think a lot of people know this, but Beverly um, self-funded a lot of BGR for uh, the majority of its life cycle. Of course, sometimes sponsors would come in support, but if a sponsor didn't come, Bev was dead set on making it happen and paying out of pocket for the summer conferences and um, the the camps that we had. And I think that's important to note, especially for people who aspire to be um, entrepreneurs, because that is a common story. If you're an entrepreneur and you're really passionate about something, sometimes you can't wait for somebody to fund it. Sometimes you have to to make sure that your bank account is right so that you can fund your own dream. and and so it looked like bootstrapping, um, finding, making a way out of no way at times. Um, but it also was glorious and glamorous. What um, it, it, it looked like being in in rooms and wondering how you got so lucky right. to be in there. The show you went to, 2015, mm-hmm. that was on the award show um, where I believe Michelle Obama was there, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, and, and you could definitely feel the presence and significance and importance of being in that space. Um, with her uh, and frequently with Beverly as someone who's, you know, a celebrity DJ and um, now one of the most recognizable women's advocates of our time, there were always rooms like that. Yes. um, That I got to float around in. Um, It was just, you know, a tremendous honor. Um, I was always very frantic, (laughs) like just very anxious, recognizing the importance of of my um, position and sometimes I didn't appreciate in the moment 
sometimes I didn't just breathe and take it all in because mm-hmm. I was just running around trying to make sure everything was together. Yes. Um, but it, it was remarkable, a remarkable experience. And you brought up something that I do want to highlight because, um, and DeMarcus and I spoke about this on an episode we did together about some philanthropic, uh, philanthropic work we were doing um, or have been doing. And you think because it's a good cause, because you have a deep Rolodex, um, because you're doing it coming from the right place, your heart is in the right place, that the doors are going to swing open and people are going to be like, where do I sign up to help? Right. Or where do I, who do I make the check to? And that's not the case. That is not. And I see it happen a lot, um, even within my own circle. People have a really great idea and they're very passionate about it. But like by the third no, they're just like, I can't, like, I can't do this. No, nobody's jumping on. Um, so to hear this, a brand that brings these fabulous Black women um, from the upper echelons of success in media, politics, entertainment, and business, um, a- advocacy and activism, to know that a lot of that stuff was being funded by its founder and, and visionary is surprising mm-hmm. um, because you, I think that the expectation that people have or the assumption is, well, she's a celebrity DJ. So she can just pick up the phone and get a check from this person, that person, and that person, and it's done. So I think it's important for our listeners to hear that um, because at every level, trying to get buy-in on anything, it it takes time. And especially for things that you want to have longevity and not be a, you know, a flash in the pan. Absolutely. And I think I think there's there's um another piece to this story, which is that um Bev didn't sell VGR. Mm-hmm. Right? If she had sold it early to the highest bidder, yeah. um, it, it would look different mm-hmm. even from um, a philanthropic standpoint. Um, but because she was visionary about the importance of protecting it and making sure that it remained for, for us, by us, especially in its early elementary years, mm-hmm. she she did have to pay for that. Yes. Um, there's a cost to decisions like that. Um, for instance, the organization up to this point didn't get a major grant, like from the Ford mm-hmm. Foundation. And there's stipulations. To yes. You, you lose some of your creative control because you have to honor why the grant is giving you money. So as a social entrepreneur, you do have to make those type of decisions. Do I want to, you know, cater to a grant and change the trajectory mm-hmm. of the programming that I'm doing? Or do I want to stick to my vision and then have to be the primary funder? Uh, the other thing uh, that I think is important to speak about, which you alluded to, is that we need to start supporting our own. Absolutely. We absolutely have to. And I think it's just, um, it's, it's a whole financial literacy piece to this. We have to make enough so that we mm-hmm. save a certain amount for, for our rainy day fund so that we can take care of all of our living expenses and bills uh, and other obligations, but also so that we can invest and give. Absolutely. Um, the only way that we can make sure that, you know, our friends who are entrepreneurial are thriving um, or that organizations, even if our friends didn't found them, organizations that serve young people yes. like us are thriving is if we fund them. Mm-hmm. We should be the primary funder. I hate going to events and seeing people who don't look like me at the tables bidding or or supporting organizations that are for us. Yes. Um, so I, I definitely think that's something um, that we need to work on collectively as a people. Absolutely. And, and having just gone through this fundraising experience, what I had found is, you know, so we're going out to our respective networks and raising money for an amazing cause. Um, What we see is an amazing cause and seeing the difference in giving between um, my colleagues who look like me, my colleagues who don't, we all make the same money. The, the, the difference in what they're willing to part with. And I don't necessarily, um, I do charge myself and others um, to do better, as you said, but I don't necessarily blame us because there's a stigma around money and parting with it. 
Um, and I, I find that a lot of us still live with this fear of lack because we didn't come from a lot. So even as you're trying to get it, it's like, well, I, I need to keep as much of I, much of it as I can at home. And then also a part of it, too, is just where our treasures lie. And, you know, we'll spend $100 on brunch in New York. Correct. But it's very difficult to get people to spend $100 on a community cause. Same money. Same money. Impact is a whole lot, you know, larger over here. But just the our mentality around it is something that has to change. I agree. And and I think it's like, there just needs to be a mindset shift. Mm -hmm. There needs to be intentionality around giving to causes that benefit us as a community. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is why I said there's a holistic financial literacy to this. I I totally get it. I was talking to another friend who's an entrepreneur. She has a brilliant um, organization based in Miami called Koki, where um, she works with chefs to get them places in homes and oh, wow. match them to, to folks in the area. And she's starting her, her fundraising um, initiative now. Same issue. And and we were speaking about how, you know, for our people, we need more than a proof of concept. We need, like, <laughs> we want to see 15 years. Yes. We, we want to see your books. It's true. We need to see it all. There is a major trust <laughs> issue when it comes to us parting ways with our money. Um, particularly if, if it's giving our money to folks who look like us. Yes. Because we do not mind parting ways with our money for frivolous things. It's or, true. You know, the red bottoms or whatever it mm-hmm. may be. So that's something I, I would say from my experience at BGR and seeing, you know, uh, Beverly having to do a lot on her own, despite mm-hmm. how vast uh, the social network is, um, how many followers there, there are of BGR, despite um, the the celebrities and influencers who are familiar and aligned with the brand. Um, she did a lot of heavy lifting um, financially on her own and made a lot of sacrifices. And, and so I would like to see more people funding um, BGR and organizations like Black Girls Rock that are founded by us for us. Let's, let's change that. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I don't want to bury an important point of your story here because people will hear that you work with BGR and the assumption is going to be like you started there and you came in as an EA and you, you know, climbed the ladder and you're now in this other role or what have you, but you actually left the organization. So what drove you to the point to say, okay, it's time for me to make a transition? Um, That's a really good question. Um, I will say anyone who's been like the right hand to a senior leader knows how taxing it can Mm -hmm. be. Um, It's very cumbersome um, physically. Uh, you, You have to be on demand frequently, um, but also it can be spiritually taxing. Sure. Uh, and so for me, I had a conversation with um, Beverly about needing to take care of myself, like just uh, have a better work-life balance. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, she really understood. She was like, you know, I get it. You've been here, you know, for a while. Um, and I had that conversation with her at first, I want to say in 2014. That's when I founded my consultancy. And we worked it out where I was still at BGR full-time working in the same capacity and taking on consulting projects. So um, the work, the flavor of the work changed a little bit and um, was keeping me on my toes. Um, But then by 2017, so three years later, I had reached another wall. And I don't know if you've experienced this too, where it's like you reach a wall, then there's suggestions. Yes. Okay, this is good. This is working. Then it's like, oh. It's really like a relationship. <laughs> it is, it is. So we hit another wall. There there was another major project, I think it, the book, Beverly's book, um, that was happening around that time. And I just felt so overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a catch-22. It really was. The, the project itself was amazing. Um, the mission, still amazing and aligned. But I felt pulled um, in every direction so I couldn't enjoy the work, nor could I work at my highest level of efficiency. Um, And so again, another change needed to be made. Um, And I think, you know, a testament to me speaking up and to Beverly's leadership, I was, you know, allowed to work from home more during that phase. Um, But eventually I decided to pivot to focus more on building my consultancy, um, getting more clients. Um, 
as well as just doing some life planning, um, really devoting to my love life, you know, building with my partner, mm-hmm. the result of which is a whole child. <laughs> <laughs> which we definitely want to talk about. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, and so it was just um, making a decision to leave a dream job, um, a booming business, um, BGR is still growing um, rapidly to make sure that I was watering my whole garden and not just one plant. I really do believe as well that I could still do that work there. I I have a really great relationship with uh, my BGR sisters, but I really had to figure out how to water my whole Mm -hmm. garden. I I wasn't well, I wasn't whole. And it's like a shame to be doing work that's that dynamic um, and work that is tied to the uplift of Black women and girls when you don't feel right. uplifted. Um, it was just too much of a conundrum not to address it. Um, and so that's why I pivoted and stepped away from it. Did you have, in, in that transition, did you have um, a moment of feeling a shift in your self-worth or a fear of missing out um, or a sense of lack from losing, you know, even though you were still connected, losing that exposure and that, I I don't know, I'll just be very candid here. Um, One of the things that I think I subconsciously have appreciated over the years is a lot of things could be going on in my life personally, like could be lacking, but the minute that people hear that, A, I'm an attorney, B, I'm an attorney who's worked with A, B, and C, the way their face lights up, like, oh, you know, yeah. um, and that sense of legitimacy it gives you. I'm sure when you said, I work with Beverly Bond, the Black Girls Rock, people, are, they take notice. So when you made that decision, um, did you have a fear of losing self-worth or um, of, of missing out on something? Um, that's such a brilliant question. Mm-hmm. I do... I started at BGR when I was 23 and stayed until I was 30. Wow. So a lot of my identity as a working adult was tied um, to that space, to the title. Um, So I actually had to be very intentional about um, doing affirmation work Mm -hmm. and pulling myself from the brand um, and making sure that the cloak that I wore was more so the mission. Because the mission can be fulfilled anywhere. And the mission is more so my truth and my Mm -hmm. alignment. Um, And I think I told you I was reading a lot of Brene Brene Brown, um, but what she talks about in Daring Greatly, too, is that when you tie your worth to a thing, you you already lose. Um, Because as we all know in this economy, whether you're working in-house at a major corporation or whether you're working at a startup brand, the job can go at any time. In a flash, yeah. Um, So we do ourselves a disservice when we tie ourselves to brand. We have to um, be intentional about tying ourselves to the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's important to the work of finding our song, finding our reason and finding our purpose. Once you know that, no one or nothing can take it away from you. You might tweak it and change right. it as the years um, go along. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly that brand um, and working with, you know, the founder who's dynamic on her own had a, a lot of pull, a lot of weight. Um, and I did go through a moment where I panicked. Like, what mm-hmm. does it mean yeah. that I won't have that? Um, what does it mean for how people will receive me? And surprisingly, what I found is that people were watching me. Mm. I didn't, when I didn't know, when I honestly, some of my self-talk was that, you know, I'm just an assistant. Sometimes I um, overlook the amount of work and the integrity of it that I was doing. But what I found when I pivoted is that people remembered me and reminded me of who I was, reminded me that I was such a hard worker, mm-hmm. reminded me that I was efficient, reminded me that I was kind, um, 
but a go-getter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they valued seeing both in a human being. I, I, I mean, literally, I would bump into people after church and they would be like, Linda, how are you? Are you still with BGR? No, I'm not. Oh my goodness. Like, I'm so happy I met you there. Wow. Um, you were an amazing asset. It was good to work with. Mm-hmm. Like, I kept getting the affirmations as I were, as I was doing them for myself before I left the house. Um, and that was incredibly important um, to me as I was stepping out on my own, for sure. So you talked about watering your garden in other areas um, after leaving BGR. What did that look like? Um, it looked like running. Mm-hmm. I got back into running uh, again, um, and that became a daily practice. It looked like meditation, yoga. So a lot of um, self-care practices, mm-hmm. just making sure that my regimen was together. Um, it looked like going out on dates more mm-hmm. um, and eventually forming a partnership mm-hmm. with Mabu. Um, it looked like being with my sorority sisters more. Um, when I was knee deep in work, I like definitely boxed off friends mm-hmm. and said no to a lot of events. So it looked like saying, saying yes, having a year of yes, um, as Shonda Rhimes would say, um, when it came to um, fraternizing. Um, and it also looked like mapping out my own business, changing the infrastructure so that it could be more profitable yes. and become my primary stream of revenue. Um it looked like pitching to people who I've met over the years, um, both through BGR and also through other companies um, where I was at um, Harlem Children's Zone, Harlem Village Academies, um, BET. It looked like really getting clearer mm-hmm. about who I am and what I want out of life holistically, Um, not just as a career woman. um, I found through motherhood that work is still important to me. Mm. I don't want to be a stay-at-home mom. I want to keep working and um, keep shifting culture. Um, And and so, yeah, it it meant like really finding my song again, um, but paying attention to every note, not just a few notes. Yeah. And um, I had mentioned before we started recording that I'm reading this book, The Beautiful No, by former executive producer of The Oprah Winfrey Show and, you know, former co-president of OWN, Sherry Salata, who doesn't look like us, but, you know, spent 20 years executing the vision of someone who does, Oprah Winfrey. And um, one of the things, the whole crux of her book is that she had the dream job, but not the dream life, which really struck me because I know so many women who feel that way. Even if they can't say the, find the words yet, they're like, I, I got the job. I bought the house. I have the car. You know, things are, if my duck's not all in a row, at least I have them in the pen together and I'm, I'm working on it. Why do I still feel like I'm missing something. Um, But I think also within that conversation, often where they land is, well, my love life's not together. You know, I don't have a partner and they put a lot of the weight about what's missing there. Um, and that, I think, is a part of it. But there are also so many other pieces that can contribute to that that emptiness. For you, were you feeling feeling that I'm lacking romance in my life and that is a huge reason why I'm not fulfilled? Um, or or do you feel like that's just a bonus at, at this point that you did find a healthy, solid partnership and now have this little family? Um, that's such a great question. I think... I was in a a long-term relationship um, in my early 20s. Mm -hmm. So by mid-20s, I was like, I just want to have fun. I want to be, you know, a Black woman in New York. (laughs) Chocolate version of sex. (laughs) Yes. I want that life. Um, But to your point, um, as I was approaching 30, I was like, this, first of all, it's just not me. (laughs) Right. This, it, it's not me, and I do want more. I want a partner who I can come home to and um, talk about my day, mm-hmm. strategize together. Yeah, I'm certainly craving that. Um, and I meditated on it a lot. And what I what kept coming up for me um, is that I think collectively, women and men who are professionals of color, um, we owe it to ourselves to be 
hyper um, visionary about our careers and the family lives that we want. We owe that to ourselves. We don't, I don't think we have to pick. Perhaps you can't do it all at the same time, just like you would never launch five businesses at once, right. but you can scaffold it um, in a way where you're like, you know, when I'm okay with my career, when I know my career identity um, is what I mean by okay, then I want to water this plant more, this mm-hmm. plant being a relationship. I think I think that's important work too. Um, we're whole beings. And so we can't, um, we can't just um, put our energy into the things that make us look good on the outside and not um, build the soft skills that are necessary and critical to, to being partners if we want partnerships. It's just like we, we, we have to understand that going to therapy, even if we decide not to be in a relationship, going to therapy will help us once we are in a relationship. So there's things you can do early on before you're ready to date seriously that will make that transition better for both you and your future partner. So I I was with a group of women uh, recently and one of the, the topics that came up is this dynamic between Black men and Black women, particularly when both are very successful. And one of the comments that was made was, you know, as as really successful women, maybe sometimes you need to tone it down, right? Just tone it down a little for uh, for his sake. And that res- that comment was met with kind of like a flat response. I mean, people didn't really have a visceral reaction, but they were not really jumping on board with that. Um, and for you, coming from a school like Barnard, working for a number of years for an organization like BGR, where it's all about I am woman, hear me roar, we can do anything, you know, we're killing the game. Did you feel a need to dim your light for the sake of your partnership, your romantic partnership? I didn't, but mm-hmm. I I heard that from a neighbor who's, a, he's a very high profile profile person too, when I was telling him the type of partner that I want. And he said something like, you know, like you're in a top 10 percentile. (laughs) And so like, maybe you need to adjust what you're expecting to get out of a partner. Um, And which is different than toning yourself down. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was saying just adjust what you expect, mm-hmm. which I also wasn't willing to do. Yeah. I'm not willing to tone myself down um, because I think your partner, everyone's partner should be able to receive you as you are. Absolutely. Um, what I will say is um, I did take his advice eventually and I stopped looking for the whole package that I thought I needed. Mm-hmm. I really looked for soft skills, like can someone handle all that I am? Um, um, is the person ambitious? Are they loving? Do they love women? What's the relationship with their mother? Yeah. Those sorts of things became more important than what school did they go to? What advanced degree did they have? Um, and so... I think, you know, in, in, in conclusion, what I would say is women should be their whole selves. Mm-hmm. But if your whole self is messy, you should be working on that. Yeah, um, that's that's the point. Um, you want to be able to show up. Honestly, you want to be able to be vulnerable both in work and in your personal life. Um, but in order to do that, you have to do your work which um, would be self-care, therapy, um, and living authentically. So let's talk about the work that you were doing on both the professional and personal front. So we talked about the dating, building this partnership, yoga, running all those things. But you built this business, Mogul Pro Consulting. So talk a little bit about that. Um, So I started Mogul Pro in 2014. um, And I think the business came out of a need that I saw um, that I was able to meet Mm -hmm. with Beverly. Um, I had the thought that most high-powered leaders need highly competent right hands. Um, Like you said, the title might be EA. The titles are irrelevant. They need someone who they can rely on um, to get things done. Um, They need someone who can communicate well, sometimes on their behalf, when um, they're unavailable. Um, and, And so I thought of 
starting the firm to um, meet that need for other people who weren't in positions like Beverly, but reaching across people who were trying to get there, who had um, businesses or causes that I loved. Um, and so I, I started uh, that in 2014. It wasn't until um, maybe 2016 where I expanded outside of um, BGR as a primary client. Mm -hmm. um, and I focused on uh, speech writing for senior leaders, uh, some PR and event production. Okay. The three things um, that I worked on. And starting in 2016, um, I got some really dynamic clients who were doing incredible work. Um, uh, Brandon Frame, who you interviewed, yes. um, he was one of my clients and he's doing great work building, I think, which is um, kind of like a cousin brand yes. are, um, for Black boys and Black men. Um, uh, I've worked with some senior leaders at BET on um, speech writing. Um, I've worked, I went back to um, spaces where I was employed and, and worked with their leaders, Harlem Children's Home, Harlem Village Academy, um, which I think speaks to the, the importance when you're an entrepreneur, you got to knock on doors that you are ready yes. to through. Um, and hopefully if you did a good enough job, the door will, will open for you with ease. But that's how I kind of got my confidence um, as a young entrepreneur. Now I'm in a phase where I'm shifting my business model completely. Mm -hmm. I want to move away from um, a service-based model to a product um, model. So I'm capturing a lot of content um, to teach. Okay. When it comes to public speaking, um, so that that could be sellable content. Um, I will still do one-on-one -on -one consulting, of course, and executive coaching. I'm very passionate about that work. Um, but as you know, a bandwidth of one or two is very short. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, yes, I'm definitely in the phase where I'm shifting the model. Um and working on actually how to train more people mm -hmm. for the EA role, I think is an excellent role to, to have coming out of college. Absolutely. Of that I'm doing with Mobile Propeller um, is working with neighboring colleges to create a core that will um, prepare students who are in the humanities for EA roles and match them to mentors at companies that are aligned with their passions. Um, and I'm hoping to launch that um, in the fall of 2020. And I think people overlook those EA roles as an, it's a launching pad for so many things. And I know senior executives who started in those positions who are now in the C-suite or doing, you know, other things. And it also speaks to um, this, this idea, like we live in this like microwave society now where everybody wants to be a mogul overnight, right? No pun intended, but like they want to, they want to be propelled immediately. Um, and really, yeah, it's just discounting coming in at an entry level and, and building those skills and honing them and working your way up. And also to, to speak to your specific experience, not burning bridges. Correct. So that when you do move on and you do evolve. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's like if they can't give you the business themselves, being able to connect you to the people who can and can speak to your work um, and your integrity and all those things. And I, I think sometimes where we we fail as a generation is deciding that we're over it and just like I'm done and walking out and not doing it in a, you know, a conscious a, a conscious way, you know, um, and, and ruining the relationship in a way that you can never, never go back, never go you back. know, terrible, mm -hmm. terrible thing to do It's very important to, um, maintain relationships regardless of why you left or pivot. Mm -hmm. Um, I always tell my mentees that, um, and I think another thing that I would like to communicate to the generation is title matters a little bit less than you think it does, mm -hmm. especially when you're just starting out. Um, to your point, if you can get in the door as an assistant, whether it's a personal assistant or an executive assistant, um, it's a tremendous learning opportunity. Um, the position pays fairly well, particularly when you're just starting. Yeah. 
Um, and if you're visionary about when you want to pivot and get out, it can be um, a very dynamic learning experience, um, an experience where you gain um, social capital mm -hmm. as well. Um, if you perform with excellence, that's another thing that's been coming up for me a lot with with, um, you know, my own work experience and with my clients, which is that you can be excellent wherever you are. Yes. I think um, Martin Luther King has a quote about it. Like if I were a street sweeper, I'm going to be the best mm -hmm. street sweeper. Um, having that attitude in roles um, like EA roles gets you propelled, not necessarily quickly, but it, it will um, propel you eventually. And, you know, I, I am, in my experience, EAs are some of the most well-connected people themselves. I mean, the, the Rolodex is often very deep for, for people who are working that closely, you know, with, with the executive. Um, but one other thing that I want to point out is this concept of like the entrepreneur. And it's not necessarily easy trying to build a business and juggling a full-time position, but it's something that we like to highlight on this show as a viable option. Sometimes the answer is not always, I'm just going to jump in with both feet and make it happen. God bless folks who've done it. Yeah, um, shout out to y'all. <laughs> Amen. But how, so how do you, how do you balance that? Um, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of entrepreneurs. Um, it's hard to balance, but it's doable. Um, I will say uh, the most rewarding part is obviously having your own capital mm -hmm. to fund um, your entrepreneurial ventures. Uh, for me, what I was able to do um, once I became pregnant was I um, changed my hours mm -hmm. full time to part time. Um, I had enough savings to do so, okay. obviously. So I work part time. Um, that's a constant stream of revenue um, that helps me balance my books. Um, and then I do consulting for my own business mm -hmm. part time. And then I'm a full time mom. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm able to achieve balance, namely because my partner has a similar um, work-life okay. balance. Um, he works in the academy. Mm -hmm. And so his office hours are a bit flexible. Um, and so when it comes to parenting our child, we take turns on who is the chief partner on duty. Okay. Um, he's very great when I have to step away to meetings. And sometimes I bring Zora to meetings with me. My baby girl mm -hmm. um, is right there. Uh, and that is helpful. Um, but I think when I was working full time, the biggest piece was um, scheduling, mm -hmm. making sure that I created hours that were blocks that were for my clients. My clients owned those hours, whether they were um, they were usually between six and eight okay. from work um, and also um, using one of the weekend days, usually Saturday um, as a work day for my clients as well. Um, and then um, being very strict about Sundays being my day, mm -hmm. um, my day for myself and my family. And you brought up something that I'm a huge proponent of, and that is the blocking. Yes. Because I think where people struggle in the entrepreneurship space mm -hmm. is trying to do their side hustle at their main gig, oh, no. right? Or, um, or not being committed when they get home to saying, okay, now I have to focus on this because they are so worn out. And I tell people all the time, like, there's no easy formula. Every day you don't feel like after, you know, being in the office for right. the place that pays you a salary right. um, to come home and say, all right, now I've got to focus on these things or mm -hmm. finally getting to the weekend and everybody else is kind of hanging out or saying, can you meet for brunch? And you're like, well, no, because I have a full day of work on, on Saturday. And I'm very candid with, with people when they ask me, they're like, oh, you're just so motivated. And I'm like, not all the time, but I'm committed. Yeah. So even when the motivation is not there, I'm committed to this and I know what has to be done. And just like I don't feel like getting up, going to the office every day. Sometimes I don't feel like working on the things that I'm very passionate about, but it is a job for me. Even though I'm passionate about it, it's a job and I'm equally as committed. It's an obligation. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very important um, to also have accountability. Yeah. Um, I definitely have a circle of um, friends who are also entrepreneurs who um, I can tap on to hold me accountable for doing the work mm -hmm. on days where I yes. get motivated. Um, and then, you know, again, uh, to your point, scheduling 
anything that hits my schedule is an obligation. Um, I can't buy my way out of it. Mm -hmm. I have to get it together and and show up. Um, I will say for entrepreneurs who do their work at work, unless you have an agreement (laughs) with your boss, I would stray away from it. You're just asking to be fired. Yeah. You're asking (laughs) to be fired, and then it actually can backfire and and set up... um, a behavior system where even when you're doing your project full time, you're not able to turn it off when you should. Like Agreed. When you should be having partner time, you just become used to being all consumed by um, your entrepreneurial venture. It works in propelling people further, but if you're trying to create um, balance and buckets, it, it can be um, a hindrance. Absolutely. And I think, um, 26ers, our personality is, you know, very high achieving, um, really focused. When we're on something, we're on it. And we can allow it to become all consuming. And it's like, I got this idea and I have to work on it right now. And and that is something that um, I have had to learn to temper as well. And one of the things when you engage in those sprints where you're just giving 100% 100 of yourself to something until you completely burn out and you're neglecting these other areas, you go through that enough, you learn that sometimes it's or most of the time it's better to go slow to go fast. It's easier to do small chunks, take small bites of the elephant and make consistent progress than allowing it to take over you for a period of time. And then you have literally nothing left to give to any to anything. It, that, that's a lesson that took me a, a very long time to learn. Um, but I, I do want to talk about motherhood as well, because for those of us who are over 30 <laughs> um, and who are who want to be a mom, I think one of the things that you brought up something that I love is that you realized that you do want to work, you know, as well. And, and I know a lot of women who want to be a mom, but have so many other goals professionally or, or, or otherwise that they're reaching for and achieving and, and starting to feel like, well, if I have this kid, how will all these other things work? So when you found out, like, I'm going to have a baby, did you have those questions of like, how's my life going to change? Am I able, am I going to be able to continue to grow this business and do all the other things that I do? Absolutely. Not only did I have those questions, mm-hmm. if I can be honest about it, I, I had to mourn my past. Wow. I had to mourn the flexibility that I had, the the tremendous amount of get up and go. Um, the relationship mm-hmm. shifted with, um, you know, my friends and um Yeah, I definitely had to mourn my past life and then create um, a new life that included Zora, my daughter. Um, And that work, I'm still in the midst of it, obviously. Mm -hmm. I'm only um, six months into motherhood. Um, But first and foremost, it's just like with anything, even, you know, with business, I created um, a philosophy of how I wanted to mother and do work. Um, I had to literally write it out. Like, Mm -hmm. what does it look like for me? And so what it looks like for me is getting to a place where I can afford to be entrepreneurial 100% of the time. I'm giving my myself another three years of being an entrepreneur, um, of being really fiscally responsible. Um, and then I want to be an entrepreneur for full time so I can um, be um, have more time with Zora. It definitely means understanding that even as an entrepreneur um, and working from home part of the time, I I can't do it all. Right. Um, So it meant um, creating a village of uh, folks who I trust to pick up the slack when I'm not there. And luckily, like I said, my partner um, also um, is an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. has flexibility with his commitments to the academy. Um, But her godparents, um, they already signed up for certain days. Um, my parents um, who live in Philadelphia still come up every other weekend. Um, oh, wow. His parents are on Long Island. And so um, his mother has one day during the week with Zora. So it's it's a business 
<laughs> and it's mm -hmm. um, scheduling around her in a way that allows us to still do the work that we love. Um, what I will say as well is that this um, transition to motherhood already has me working on my next business. Um, <laughs> it's um, a tech-based business that will connect um, mothers of color mm -hmm. um, to the resources that they need, particularly if they're working women um, or entrepreneurial women, um, because there's just so much that you don't know until you're in it. And I think the lack of information sharing around motherhood, even in families, is a right. bit ridiculous. ridiculous. Like, I, there's things I didn't find out about how my body works um, that were connected to my mother and her history until I literally was in the hospital having um, my child. So I definitely am working on something else um, that will be both storytelling and digital media for women of color and also um, an app that will connect um, people to, to groups mm -hmm. um, where they can build with um, other moms of color as well as OBGYNs. Um, that, that was also a, a mess, finding um, a doctor of color. Yes. Color doctor. Um, and so, yeah, motherhood, um, it's been a challenge balancing, but it's been exciting to figure it out, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, and it's definitely illuminated um, different holes that have me excited about my next business venture. Which is Oh man, so so needed. I I have these conversations often. Um, it took me a while to find an OBGYN of of color, and when I did, it just was an eye opening experience because not only could she relate to me, but her bedside manner and her understanding of some of the unique experiences as a as a black woman, even in terms of environmental influences and stress that we're under, and and all that stuff was amazing. So so that um. That in and of itself, just being able to connect women of color to practitioners is incredibly necessary. Um, That's OBGYN's doula. Yes. I had like such a hard experience finding a doula who was close to me, mm -hmm. um, who was in a price point that I can afford um, and who could cater to the multifaceted needs that I had um, for pre and post Yes. So all of those needs um, for health and motherhood, I think we can find easier ways to make sure that they get met. Yeah. And also um, being over 30 and looking at options. Correct. And, and I, I found that my white counterparts were like well versed in what was out there. Meanwhile, my black friends and I were like, I didn't even know that this whole world existed or, you know, about it in theory, um, but not really. And, and the things that you can do to really take control of your health and your future and, you know, try to preserve your fertility. Those are that's a journey that I'm, I am on, which we'll talk more about on the show at some point. But I had no idea. And my friends didn't have any idea. You know, we're like educated women with access and insurance and all those things and no clue. I think part of it is we just need to talk about it mm -hmm. earlier. Yes. Especially for high powered women. I think we should be start having these conversations in our mid 20s. Absolutely. Anticipate having children until um, mid 30s and onward. Absolutely. So you mentioned um, this process showing you how to mother yourself. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Um, when I was pregnant, I was thinking a lot about how I can best show up for mm -hmm. my daughter. Um, and it came to me when I was meditating that one, she's going to be okay. <laughs> my village is good. I'm good. She's, she's going to be a, a fairly sponsored child. Mm -hmm. She's going to have a good life, but what can, um, assure that she has the best life is if I'm balanced enough that I'm mothering myself. Mm. Like I have to be well first in order to make sure that she's not inheriting my stuff. Right. Um, whatever baggage I, I may still need to unpack. Um, and so but throughout my pregnancy, I was very mindful about adhering to my wellness plan, which, um, as I mentioned before, included therapy, yoga. I was still running. Mm -hmm. um, I was doing a lot of meditation. Um, and 
I was centering myself for how I wanted to show up once she was here. Now that she is here, it's been a little bit more difficult to do all of those things at the same frequency. But because those things are my foundation, I still make time mm-hmm. um, to do the same practices. Um, and it's a lifetime commitment to making sure that my dark matter doesn't become an issue for my daughter. Um, And I think it's important for anyone who endeavors to become a parent um, to figure out what that work looks like. Absolutely. We're not um, continuing cycles of trauma. Right. And it's something that we talk about a lot on this show um, and our proponents of having the difficult conversations within communities of color, especially. And, you know, we we often grow up in, in do as I say, not as I do type homes or just respect me and not and you don't you don't have a voice here to express your feelings about things. That's a cultural issue, um, but also not doing the work and then passing on those pathologies or it affecting how we interface with our kids or how they they show up in the world um, and having to work through that stuff. And, and I'm thankful that it seems that our generation, a lot of us are saying, you know, these patterns stop with me. Yes. Now I'm going to do the work so that I put forth a whole child into the world who can become a whole adult without all the baggage that they didn't even ask for. Um, and that that is something that I'm, I'm excited to see the generational shifts I am too. that happen for us as a people. Too. And, um, you know, salute to our generation. Mm-hmm. I think there's something about the time that we were born into yeah. where there's a lot of information sharing. And so people are figuring it out and doing the work, but they're also sharing it mm-hmm. um, in a very plentiful way via social media. So it's slowly destigmatized yes. um, what it means to be well. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So shifting gears a bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Oh, when I had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Um, I will give uh, two anecdotes. Um, I don't know if you'll use both, but mm-hmm. I'll give two. Um, one was um, back in my BGR days, I'm working on the, the conference and the summer camp. Those were initiatives that we had to start due to demand. Mm-hmm. So once the show went to um, television in 2010, there was a demand for everybody to participate in the youth enrichment program, which we were just having on Saturdays <laughs> in Brooklyn. Just, you know, make it happen. Yes. So make it happen. Um, I first did a lot of research on different camp facilities. Um, The first one we started at was Ramapo, which is in Mm -hmm. upstate New York, um, which was great, but didn't have um, classrooms or the technology for the type of programming that um, we put together, the type of curriculum that we built. Um, And so we moved it to Barnard, um, my alma mater, and... Again, as I told you, the team was very small. Yeah. But even putting on that production required um, all of us. Ebony Rose um, came on board to help direct that. And Renee um, and Beverly was very hands-on with the production for that. Um, So working together to produce that while also doing the award show was Mm. an example of um, how I and all of us had to be um, extraordinary on an ordinary day. Um, And a more recent story about being extraordinary Extraordinary on an ordinary day um, is balancing working, being an entrepreneur, and being a mom. Um, recently this week, I had um, a series of meetings. Mm-hmm. I had three meetings in one day, um, and I had mother time with uh, Zora, um, mommy daughter time. We had our, our date in the park, um, and so there was a scheduling conflict that that I had, and I just had to troubleshoot in the moment um, to have Frank come from work um, to rescue me from mommy-daughter time so that I could go to the meeting. Um, And then I had to relieve him so that he could go back to work. Scheduling nightmare. It's like a tactical mission. It is, is, but it worked out. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I'll have more situations like that. And it's just sometimes you just have to flow. Right. I think being extraordinary on ordinary days means flowing and using your tactical experience Mm -hmm. to make it work, to find a way out of no way. And what's so interesting about this is that you 
mentioned that when you were at BGR, you were like frantic, right? Yes. Right. So just devoting so much attention to that one role. Now you are probably dedicating the same amount of hours when you add up, if not more, everything together, job, parenting, um, entrepreneurship. But to see your spirit as calm as it is and secured, I think it speaks to that internal work um, that you were talking about and speaks to creating an environment that feeds you. So you may have as much or more going on, but you're in a space that is allowing you to water your garden, which affects then how you show up to these things and how you're able to manage and cope, which I think is an incredibly important lesson. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's, you can tell like you're, you're doing it well, you know, I mean, granted it's a Saturday, maybe you're more calm today, but you know, I can just see that you have a piece about you, which is in, encouraging, especially for those who are wanting to branch out, but not knowing how to make all of the puzzle pieces fit yes, together. It's achievable, but mm-hmm. it definitely takes work. Yeah. Introspection. So where can people find you online? Yes, people can find me at um, mogulpropeller.com mm-hmm. um, or Glenda underscore Nicole um, on Twitter and Instagram. Well, I've enjoyed this. I always enjoy when we have like one of my sisters on because we're so few and far between on this show, not for a lack of trying. But so when women do come, it's always a special treat, you know, for me, for sure. For sure. For me too. And you're doing fantastic work. Thank you. Thank you. Elevate the stories of um, entrepreneurs. Thank you. So we'll let you get back to baby Zora and your partner uh, as well. But to those who are listening, please check out uh, Glenda online and the amazing work that she's doing. Be sure to follow her consulting work. And I'm going to be on the lookout for your next venture because that that is important for me um, as well. So be sure to support and follow. And as always, remember to be extraordinary ordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.